Come on, let's put our hands together and just worship. Hallelujah.
If you're happy to be in the house of the Lord, why don't we give him just a great praise just for the next few moments. Come on, let's just praise the Lord. Praise God. Praise God. Come on, just for a few more seconds, let's just praise him. Come on, let's just saturate the atmosphere with a great praise right now. Hallelujah. 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 Praise the name of the Lord. Amen. So you're making your way back to your seats. It is my great honor to bring Brother Raymond Woodward to this pulpit today. He is the Bishop of Capital Community Church. He fills many roles throughout our organization. He has spoken in many of our local churches and most of our district meetings. But more than that, Brother Woodward is a true Christian. On Tuesday night, he addressed uh, the speakers and sponsors, and he said something to all of them. He said that ministry goes beyond the pulpits. He said, beyond you just ministering in the pulpit or beyond you just ministering with song, he said, let's be intentional when we're walking through the crowd that we're always ready to speak the right word at the right time. Four years ago, because of the times, me, Brother Caleb Herring, and Brother Dan McLeod were standing in the altar, and uh, Brother Woodward walked up to us and said, you three are going to lunch with me. And he put us in the car, he took us to lunch, and he just talked to us that day. And he just poured into us that day. That day changed my life as a young man. And Brother Woodward is somebody that doesn't just preach in this pulpit to this generation, but he believes in this generation. And I am excited for what the Lord is about to do in this first session. So as we get ready to receive the man of God and the word from God, why don't we lift our hands? Why don't we lift our voices? And let's get ready for what the word of the Lord is about to say to us. Brother Woodward. I worship you, Jesus. Thank you, Dylan. Thank you, Pastor and this great team for uh, hosting this meeting and for allowing me to be part of it. I'm so grateful for all of you that are here this morning. And uh, what a powerful word from God we heard through two vessels of the Lord last night. Um, my goodness. couple of quick housekeeping things. Number one, I'm a teacher. I explain things. If it gets too out in the deep weeds for you, just say, he's a teacher, bless his heart. You'll be fine. Secondly, I'm a crier, not a town crier, just a crier. And so if that messes you up, just cut me some slack. But I feel the presence of the Lord in our midst. He is around us. He is for us. He goes before us. He is in us. I'm not pausing because I don't know where to go. I'm just pausing because he deserves to be honored in such a way this morning. So uh, we'll be seated. We're not going to take a text. We'll walk 
to a lot of scripture. But when you get seated, would you lift up your hands and would you fill this sanctuary one more time with your voice? I worship you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. In so many ways, they seem to be a lost generation. They are perceived to be rebellious, but that's just their instinctive gut-level reaction against a world that has hurt them so deeply. They appear arrogant and aloof, but in reality, they're just feeling isolated and lonely. Sometimes they feel like strangers in their own country. They distrust those in charge because they live with the consequences of battles that were fought, lines that were drawn, and sides that were chosen before they were even born. They have lots of hard questions, but nobody seems to have any good answers. They have valid concerns and they have passionate perspectives. But it seems like no one respects them enough to even try and understand them. And most hurtful of all, they don't usually talk about any of this because they feel like their opinion isn't valued anyway. So they just withdraw further into their own little world, which continues to perpetuate all these negative stereotypes about their generation. It's common knowledge that they are less religious than previous generations, but they would protest, we may be less religious, but we're actually more spiritual. Unfortunately, that spirituality has been more influenced by culture than by scripture. And so they've cobbled together their own version of God, their own interpretation of his commandments, and their own take on worship. They value tolerance over tradition, actions over words, options over rules, and mostly authenticity over authority. They struggle with holiness because they live in a world overrun with ungodliness. And unfortunately, many of them would rather have the applause of their peers than the approval of their elders. It's not their fault. It's just their reality. So they wait for conversation and they hope for connection. They are an untapped resource. They are an unharvested field. They are an unreached generation. Some see them as too apathetic, too atheistic, too immoral, or too impossible to reach. But God has always wanted them to be part of his kingdom. So he waits for someone in their generation, but not of their generation, to speak the word to their generation. 
I'm not talking about Generation X or Generation Y or Generation Z or even the new one that most of us aren't aware of yet, Generation A. They started all over again on us. No, I'm talking about Generation S, the Samaritans. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, I'll pick up where Brother Urshan left off. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. You could call this blessed in the borderlands part two. The church was promised power in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, but they were also given direction in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Not just to reach Jerusalem and Judea, but also to reach Samaria and ultimately the uttermost part of the earth. Not just to reach into comfortable territory, but to wade into hostile territory. And Samaria actually was the key. Because if the apostolics could ever move beyond their familiar Jewish culture to reach the hostile culture of the Samaritans, then they could reach anyone, anywhere, anytime. However, the narrative contained between Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and Acts chapter 8 verse 5, it covers a period of about five years. And during that time, the Jerusalem church was richly blessed. So many great things happened, divine visitation and miracles and boldness. And they grew in spite of persecution and disputes and opposition. And their growth rate's pretty impressive. We like the first few chapters of the book of Acts because of all the big numbers. But it all happened inside a Jerusalem Jewish subculture. They were still focused on one city and one region. People who shared their history and their heritage. People who shared their politics and their preferences. People they thought would make good Pentecostals. People who were just like them. And all the time, just beyond their self-imposed boundaries, was an untapped resource, an unharvested field, an unreached generation. But then, thank God, the church's comfort zone was shattered by the martyrdom of a young man named Stephen and the intense persecution that followed his death. Suddenly, disciples were being scattered everywhere, including Samaria. And Stephen's death probably resulted in more obedience to the Great Commission than any other single event in the history of the early church up until that point. And it was a major factor in the conversion of Paul. And it most certainly was the tragedy that launched the ministry of one of Stephen's friends. Philip, another one of the young deacons from Acts chapter 6, he suddenly ends up in Samaria, the hostile territory. And because that young man doesn't know what else to do, he begins to speak the word. He is not one of the leaders. He is not one of the elders. He's not an apostle. He's not any of that. But God moves outside the box of their day, and he gives that young man named Philip a great revival. Acts 8 and 5, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and this is all he knew to do. He preached Christ unto them. 
And so it's a little comical. The apostles back in Jerusalem in hiding for their own safety are now forced to play catch up with what is happening because the revival God is sending is beginning to push beyond boundaries and kick itself out of boxes and it's moving beyond what they can manage or organize or expect or control. And furthermore, God is beginning to use people they didn't expect him to use. And God is beginning to save people they didn't expect him to save. All because one young man decided, I'm here, so while I'm here, I'm going to speak the word. Philip's approach is pretty simple. Whether he's talking to a Samaritan cynic or an Ethiopian eunuch, This is his approach. He just speaks the word and preaches Jesus. Acts 8.35 Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. All of you wonderful young anointed apostolics that are in this room and in this meeting, I would say to you it's just that simple. Number one, open your mouth. Because everybody else in your culture, everybody else in your generation is opening their mouth. Everybody else is voicing their opinion and giving their recommendation and giving you their options. So if they're going to talk about all of that, you don't have to be disrespectful, argumentative, hateful, or bigoted. But you can tell what you know. And what you know is this Jesus that you know. So just open your mouth. That's going to take some holy boldness. You remember the first prayer meeting in the book of Acts. They prayed that the Spirit would come. That was the last time they prayed that. After that, they began to pray for holy boldness. Check out the second and the third and all the rest of the prayer meetings in the book of Acts. We're still praying for the Spirit to come and anoint what we're doing many times. It's as if we need to go through the motions and make sure Jesus is going to show up to bless what we're doing instead of us finding out what He's blessing and us going and getting involved in that. And if you're going to get involved in all of that, you will pray for boldness because you will need boldness. If you're going to step out into your generation and go up against the current of this world, you're going to need to pray for some holy boldness. And that's all Philip did. He was bold. He opened his mouth. And then this part's just as important. That Ethiopian eunuch's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. And the Bible says he began at the same scripture. You know what Philip did? He started where that man was. He didn't expect that man to make the logical or theological leap to where he was. And we've got to be very careful in this generation. We are preaching many times, teaching many times under false assumptions. Not everybody knows who Jesus is. Not everybody believes that the Bible is the Word of God. Not everybody is familiar with Pentecostalism. Not everybody knows about Acts chapter 2. Not everybody knows about John 3.16. So you've got to begin where they are. Now that may be an irritation to you because they're not a nice, clean sinner. They don't come in a tidy little package with a bow on the top saying, I'm just waiting to receive the Holy Ghost. Sometimes it takes a little work. Sometimes you have to get into some conversation. Sometimes you have to reach until you're tired and sometimes you have to talk until you're exhausted. But it's worth it because a soul is worth more than this entire world. 
and in your generation, they're everywhere. They don't have a sweet clue about what you have experienced. They only know about you from the news media, and the news media paints you as a bunch of freaks and kooks who don't have a clue about God. You're just in it for the money, or you're just in it because you're weird, or you're kind of a bigot by nature, and that's why you're religious. That's what they know about you. It's time to flip the narrative in this generation by letting them be exposed to you. Because if they can touch you, then they can touch Jesus. Oh my. So Philip opens his mouth and he starts where that man is and he leads him. Open your mouth and start where they are. You know what? They're not the least bit impressed that you figured out who Melchizedek is. They could care less that you have the interpretation and the authority to proclaim it on the fifth pimple, on the second toenail, or the third toe, of the fifth leg, of the seventh hoof, of the... They don't care. And can I just say, we don't care either. Because we've got bigger fish to fry than arguing over interpretation. We've got a world that needs Jesus. And there's an untapped harvest and an unreached generation out there. And so Phillips gets landed right in the middle of Samaria. And, and, and then he gets landed right in the middle of the desert. And he just opens his mouth and begins where they are. And he preaches Jesus. It's that simple. So question. Just where did a young man with no ministry experience... All he was was meals on wheels for the widow ladies. How did a young man with no ministry experience learn to do that? I think I know. He uh, just loved people like Jesus did. And he let Jesus do the rest because about five to eight years before Philip ever landed in Samaria, Jesus landed in Samaria. John 4, verse 4. And he must needs go through Samaria. He had a divine appointment in Samaria. In John chapter 4, Jesus shows us just how important it is to reach for everyone and anyone with the message of the gospel. Now, that seems pretty average and normal to us, but it was very radical if you just know a little bit of history. The Old Testament historical books record that both the northern kingdom of Israel... And the southern kingdom of Judah, they ended up in captivity. The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria, and it fell to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The capital of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem, and it fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C., roughly 135, 136 years later. But when the, while the southern kingdom did return from captivity after 70 years, The northern kingdom never really returned as a whole. Assyria deported most of the people, and then their strategy was they settled the land with foreigners who then intermarried with the surviving Israelites. So by the time the southern kingdom gets back after 70 years of captivity, they are shocked at what has happened to the northern kingdom. By that time... They are Samaritans. Samaria is more than their capital city. It's now their territory. And the Samaritans are racial 
half-breeds, if you will, and the Jews disdained them. When the Jews refused to let them rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, they wouldn't even let them help. The Samaritans retaliated by building their own temple in Mount Gerizim in 400 B.C. And when the Samaritans revised the Ten Commandments a bit, the division between them was complete. By the time of Jesus, the Jews considered the Samaritans unclean. And they would travel many miles out of their way just to avoid the territory of Samaria. They would cross the Jordan River, travel up through Perea, cross the Jordan River again into Galilee, rather than go the shorter distance through Samaria, but not Jesus. Jesus in John chapter 4 ends up sitting on a well. That's the center of town in the city of Sychar. That's the dead center of Samaria. And he sends his disciples into the city for food. It looks like to get rid of them because it will blow their minds what's about to happen. And he just sits there on a well and he waits for an anonymous Samaritan woman to show up. He's on a divine mission to reach the most unlikely person that he can think of. Because he's a man and she's a woman and they didn't talk to each other in public in that era. He's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. They definitely didn't talk to her, to each other. And he's holy and she's totally unholy. There's at least a trio of reasons why Jesus shouldn't have anything to do with her. But our Lord Jesus breaks all propriety and protocol when he simply says to that woman, give me to drink. And it stuns her. It shocks her. It stops her dead in her tracks. And she admits as much in her shocked reply. She said, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Let me tell you one thing that would make this generation more in favor of your message is if you simply approach them, if you simply have something to do with them, if you don't take the long way around to avoid a conversation with them, if you don't cross to the other side of the street and look the other way and hope they don't come over because the way they look, you can almost tell their politics. The way they look, you can almost tell their lifestyle. That's not how Jesus operated. He refused to take the long way around to avoid a difficult conversation. He walked right into the middle of Samaria, right into the middle of Sychar, right to the well in the center of town, and he sat down and waited. A few years ago, one of the organizations in our town, they, did, uh, they do AIDS fundraising every year to to help people who have AIDS. Well, we know the predominant statistics on the disease, the plague called AIDS. We know that. And every year they do something in Fredericton. I don't know if it goes beyond our city and province. I've never checked it out. But in Fredericton, they do what they call the red scarf campaign. People knit scarves, make scarves, and they tie them on light poles downtown, and they fill just before Christmas, they fill uh, the downtown streets with these red scarves. And people can just come up and take a scarf if they're homeless, if they want one, and, but it's all for this cause. And that particular cause is not very much favored by the churches in our city because it just kind of 
goes a different way and cuts a different path and, and it honors almost a lifestyle that we find unscriptural and ungodly. And so one year, their crazy pastor said to CCC, this year, we need to swamp their offices with red scarves. So we just opened up the floodgates of the little old ladies' knitting circle or whatever that is. They brought in red scarves until we piled them on the platform. And our team took boxes of red scarves. We gave them more red scarves that one year than they had had for the last five years from the whole city. They couldn't believe it. You know why I wanted to do that? Because I wanted to expose our people to some people that don't share our convictions, our holiness, our doctrine, our love for Scripture. I just wanted to send us into hostile territory. It stunned them when some apostolic-looking people walked into their offices where I promise you not many people that look like us occupy those offices most of the time. It stunned them when they brought in all these boxes and then went back out to the car and got some more boxes. And Every once in a while, you just got to walk into the middle of hostile territory and let your light shine a little bit. I know, I know, I know. It's worse today than it's ever been before. This was easy for some of the elders because, you know, there were clean sinners back in that day. We don't have clean sinners anymore. But you are up to the task because you are filled with the same Holy Ghost that... So Jesus looks at her, John 4 and 10, he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you right now, give me to drink, you wouldn't let me ask that question. You'd be asking me a question. You would have asked of me and I would have given you living water. Jesus said, if you only knew what you were really thirsty for, if you only knew what you were really hungry for, if you only knew what you were really longing for, That's our message to this world today. You are longing. Yes, that's right. You are thirsty. You are hungry. You want something so bad that you'll do almost anything to try to gain that fulfillment or that approval. But if you only knew what you are really thirsty for, if you only knew what you are really longing for, if you only knew what you were really hungry for. Furthermore, if you only knew who you were talking to right now, Jesus looked at her. He said, if you just had any idea who you're talking about, this conversation would be different. You know, we need to use some of Jesus' playbook a little bit if they only knew who they were talking to. You need to be as bold to talk about what your lifestyle is as they are to talk about what their lifestyle is. Don't you back down, shut down, shut up and move into a corner and just kind of look at them and let them go on and on and on. Don't you be argumentative. Don't you be ugly. Don't you be nasty. But you speak up and say, oh, I beg to differ. I found someone that quenched my thirst. I found something that quenched the hunger of my life. I found someone. And his name is Jesus. And it gets funny right after this. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, 
You have nothing to draw with. You don't have a bucket, and this well is deep. So how are you going to get living water? And then, like every sinner faced with truth, she tries to swing it to a religious argument. My goodness, we've never had so many religious experts in the world as we have today. Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us this well, and he drank from it himself and his children and his cattle? See, she doesn't get what's really going on. She's very much like Nicodemus just one chapter earlier. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you can be born again. And Nicodemus says, where's the womb? And, and Jesus says to her, you can have living water. And she says, where's the bucket? They don't get it. And like most people that come face to face with truth, she tries to deflect the conversation to a religious argument. Are you saying you're greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? Are you saying you're superior to the patriarch? And Jesus looks back at her with love in his eyes and says, Yeah, I'm superior. And every once in a while when they push on you, are you saying your Jesus is superior to this? Are you saying that Bible is the only way? With love in your heart, with love and compassion in your voice, you need to look back at them and very kindly, with a smile, not a frown. You need to say, yeah, it's superior. You wouldn't believe what this Jesus has done for my family. You wouldn't believe how he healed my marriage and how he lifted my kids out of addiction. You wouldn't believe it. Yeah, he's superior. Jesus just calmly without offense says, yes, I'm superior to Jacob. Because a greater than Jacob is here. A greater than Jonah is here. A greater than Solomon is here. A greater than Moses is here. A greater than all the angels in heaven is here. So yes... I'm superior, but I'm not arrogantly superior. I'm graciously superior. In fact, my superiority is your salvation because you have thirst, but I have water. You have hunger, but I have the living bread. You have questions, but I'm the answer. You have needs, but I'm the provider. You have a past, but I'm the restorer. You have shame, but I'm the forgiver. You have sin, but I'm the savior. So yeah, I'm superior, but I'm graciously superior. My superiority is your salvation. And he looks at her in verse 13 and he says, Jesus answers, says unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. This anonymous Samaritan woman has no idea who she's actually talking to, and she also has no idea that she just stepped right into the smack dab middle of fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah, 600 years before Jesus walked this earth, said, Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. She has no idea that she just stepped right in the middle of Isaiah's prophecy. You do know this great crowd, this, this, this crowd that skews young, so you're the smartest among us. You know that the Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua, 
which means Jehovah has become salvation. And you do know what the Greek form of Yeshua is. It's Jesus. So without playing very much with the wording of Isaiah, the prophet just declared, For with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus just said to her. I am the living water. It's not about this well. It's not about your bucket. It's about me. I am the living water. And he didn't just say it to her. He'll say it again in about three chapters at the Feast of Tabernacles. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Oh my, oh my. And John doesn't want you to misunderstand, so he, there's a parenthesis here. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So John says, this is what Jesus said, but this is what it was talking about. So while Jesus was on the earth, people believed in him. People followed him. Just like they believe in him today, just like they've tried to follow him today. But Jesus himself said, there's something more than just believing in me. The baptism of the Holy Ghost is how you get the living water flowing in your life that changes everything. John says it was not yet given at that point because Jesus was still on earth. Got some wonderful news for this generation. Jesus has already died, been buried, risen again ascended. He's already glorified. So the water of life, the water of Jesus is available to anybody today. In every generation, we've had to have conversations with people that we would say, well, they're, they're halfway here or they believe, but they're not there yet. We need to learn how to do that, and we need to be bold enough to do that. Because if you read the book of Acts, the history of this great church 2,000 years ago, over and over again there are conversations with religious people who are brought and ushered into truth by somebody that shared the way with them more perfectly. A great company of Jewish priests, a city of Samaritans, a sincere Ethiopian eunuch, a zealous Pharisee named Saul, a prayerful centurion named Cornelius, a powerful preacher named Apollos, a seller of purple named Lydia, a jailer in Philippi, a deputy in Paphos, a chief ruler of the synagogue named Crispus, an entire group of John's disciples in Ephesus. What's the common denominator? Every one of them were religious. Every one of them tried to seek after God and find God. But thank God there was somebody bold enough and on site to say to them, it's wonderful what you've got, but I'm bold enough to tell you there's something more that you can have. The reason I can tell you that is because I have it in me. Oh my, my. Let me hasten. So now the Samaritan woman's interested, but she still doesn't understand. 
She says to him in verse 15, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. So it's like, give me this water because this bucket gets heavy. And I have to make this trip every day. So, so give me this living water. She wants to leave her bucket behind. He wants her to leave her sin behind. Like so many in this generation, she's interested in an add-on to her life when Jesus wants to become her reason for living. She's interested in convenience. He's interested in conversion. And so at this moment, in this conversation, Jesus calls her bluff. And he says, okay, go call your husband and come hither. Bring him. We'll talk together. She can't bring her husband. She doesn't have a husband. She has a string of five failed marriages. She has at least one illegitimate relationship right now. And she has spent a lifetime believing that these men could quench her thirst for love. But her bucket has only been filled with sin and shame and hurt and pain, and longing, and loathing, and frustration, and desperation. She doesn't know it right now, but she doesn't need water for her bucket. She needs water for her soul. But see, admitting that is uncomfortable. Some of us were out in the world long enough that we know how uncomfortable it can be to leave behind all that is familiar, all that is comfortable, all that you've longed for, all that you've built, and walk away from it. But as the apostolic movement moves into second and third and fourth and fifth generation, we raise up people that we're only familiar with this, and we forget how difficult it was for great-grandpa to come out of the world and come to God. We forget how difficult it was for a neighbor that's now in the church to leave behind what they had lived in for 30 or 40 or 50 years. If we're going to reach this world, we've got to love this world, even if they're not here yet. Even if they don't share your convictions and your values yet, we've got to go after them and we've got to address that. Admitting that is uncomfortable for her. So one more time, she deflects the conversation. She is becoming a religious expert, just like some of your friends at university that you've talked to or some of your colleagues at work that you've talked to. If you push them on truth just a little bit, they have all kinds of religious arguments, don't they? So she here she goes here. This is amazing. Verse 19. The woman saith unto her, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Well, Jesus never said that, but she knows the Jews said that. An animal will chew off its own leg to try to escape from a trap. And a sinner about to be exposed will do just about anything to escape conviction. Wow, Jesus, she says, you're a prophet. Hey, as long as we're on the subject of my adultery and immorality, which mountain should we worship in? This mountain or Jerusalem? It's amazing how many people instantly become amateur theologians when they're brought face to face with truth. 
But Jesus goes right to the heart of the issue. And that's where we've got to aim for. Not their politics, not their lifestyle, not their morality. We've got to go right to the heart of the issue. And Jesus tells her, it's not about Samaritans and it's not about Jews. It's not about a mountain. It's about the Messiah. It's not about a place. It's about a person. It's not about tradition. It's about truth. And it's not even about your well. It's about true worship. That's where we got to go. Just like a homing beacon, a guided missile. Look past all the paraphernalia that makes you instantly know that they don't like you. And look to the heart of the matter. Verse 23, Jesus said, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. And the punchline, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The translators did a good job here in English. God is a spirit, capital S, so we must worship Him in spirit, small s, and in truth. The word spirit, whether it's referring to God, capital S, or you, small s, is the same. Numa. It's, it's the same word. In other words, to be a true worshiper, God's spirit has to connect with our spirit. And then Jesus said, we not only worship in spirit, but we worship in truth. Uh, aletheia, and it refers specifically to divinely revealed truth. In other words, when we connect with God, we must connect with Him according to His Word. It has to be our truth, our sincerity, our transparency, but more important than that, it has to be the truth of His Word. And when the Spirit and the Word work together, God's power is always released. We've seen it in this meeting already last night as the word was preached and the spirit was released all of a sudden everything changes in that atmosphere and that is where in your generation every young leader every young minister every young saint of God that's where you have a secret weapon because you are the people who know the spirit of God and you know the word of God you say you say I don't know the word of God like brother Myers or brother Urshan I don't know the word of God like these great men and women of God that lead our churches I guarantee you know more word of God than most of the theologians know in most of the colleges that are educating these people to deny the scripture because you don't just have a dry knowledge of an old ancient text what you have is spirit revealed truth what you have is the word and the spirit working together oh my goodness so when you speak it it cuts like a knife when you speak it you speak it in accordance with the spirit and the word works in that environment my goodness, lift up your hands for just a second. I'm almost done. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-mm-mm. So one final time, this anonymous Samaritan woman tries to deflect the conversation because now the truth is hitting close to home. And she says, this is awesome. Verse 25, the woman saith unto him, I know, I know, this is good. I know that Messiah cometh, 
which is called Christ. And when he has come, someday in the future, sweet by and by, pie in the sky, he will tell us all things. That's her last-ditch attempt to deflect the conversation. Well, someday it'll all get sorted out. Well, someday we'll all be in heaven and we'll all know then. Someday we'll figure it out. All roads lead to heaven. (laughs) Jesus said to her, I that speak unto thee am he. He pulls it right back into the present tense. Now, I've been stuck in the Gospel of John for about a month and a half at home. And I still haven't gotten out and I can't escape and I'm not really wanting to. Only John's gospel, you know this, only John's gospel records the seven specific I am statements of Jesus where he directly claims to be God manifest in the flesh. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. That's where he seven times directly claims to be God manifest in flesh. But there are seven other times in John where he indirectly uses I am and claims to be God in flesh. It's not so clear. To us, it looks like a pronoun and a verb. I am. But it's the same. It's ego I me. It's, it's I am. And the very first time in the entire gospel of John that Jesus ever uses those words, reaching back to the burning bush when God Almighty revealed himself to Moses, the most powerful moment of revelation in Hebrew history, and he said to Moses at the burning bush, I am that I am. You tell Pharaoh, I am has sent me to you. And Jesus reaches back to that phrase. He reaches back to that identity. Seven times directly, seven more times indirectly in the Gospel of John. But the first time he ever voices that revelation is not in Jerusalem. It's not to religious scholars. It's not in a meeting where everybody shares the same culture and they all share the same values. The first time Jesus ever voices that revelation is to an anonymous Samaritan woman at a nondescript well in a dirty town called Sychar in a hostile territory called Samaria. He goes out of his way to meet with her and the very first time he voices that powerful revelation is to that little woman and I would say to this generation if we will ever get out of our own little comfort zone and get out of our self imposed boxes and stop thinking that you're not powerful enough, you're not anointed enough, you're not experienced enough if God could use Philip God can use you if God would orchestrate this he will orchestrate your conversations I know, I, I do this church thing with you. I love this church thing with you. But it is quite pointless to spend all of our time trying to come up with fancy little revelations to tickle the ears of saints that are already convinced when there's a world that needs the revelation that you've got right in here. The greatest place to trumpet the oneness of God is not here where everybody cheers you on and says good message, good song, good sermon. The greatest place to have that revelation touched down is in the middle of a conversation with some kind of polytheistic, amoral, liberal person who doesn't have a clue about your Jesus. 
But if the Spirit and the Word go to work, and if somebody can be bold enough to speak the Word outside of our comfort zone, God will meet us. You say, but we're outnumbered out there. Grow up. David was outnumbered when he faced Goliath. Everybody else sees a great big giant and a little kid. And David sees a little tiny giant and a massive immense God. You are far from outnumbered when you walk among the people of your generation. Really quickly, I'm, I'm sorry. Verse 39. That little woman took off running, went into town, told everybody she knew. And the Bible says many of the Samaritans of that city believed on Jesus for the saying of that woman. She testified. She said, this man, he told me all that ever I did. She was an amazing soul winner. And there are amazing soul winners out there. And I, you believe what you want. I believe there's some Apostle Pauls out there that still are persecuting Christians today. They still blaspheme the name of Jesus. They still hate everything you stand for. They'll argue with you. But one moment of revelation changes everything. Saul, you know, he was basically a terrorist against the church. You know this, right? I believe, I believe, we've got missionary friends right now that are on the border between Iraq and Iran doing missionary work right now. They're there today. I believe that there are some terrorists in this world that are going to come to God in the last day. And it's going to rock their religion. I believe there are some atheists right now that they, they argue that this is just a joke. They argue that you are just a joke. But when God gets a hold of them, they're going to become an apostolic voice and they're going to help us reach this end time generation. You believe what you want and I know we're going to have to have some difficult conversations and I dread those general board meetings, but I believe there's some people that have had all kinds of gender altering this or that or surgery or whatever, and they're going to land in our churches, and we're going to have to figure out what to do with them. Because I'll tell you what we're not going to do. We're not going to slam the door in their face and say, too far gone, you're a Samaritan, you can't come in here. I'll tell you what, I'm excited to live in the last days when Jesus is building his church. And he wants to use you to do it. And I don't care that you're young, and I don't care that you're inexperienced. He wants to use you to do it. Last verse, and I'm done. John chapter 4, verse 35. This is also the text. This is also the context. Where Jesus first utters these words. He looks at his disciples when they come back. They are not impressed. He's been talking to a Samaritan woman all afternoon. And he says to them, don't you say there are four months and then cometh harvest. Look around you. He's standing in the middle of Samaria. 
when he says these words. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at these people that are not at all like you. Look at these people that you consider immoral. Look at these people that you consider too far gone. This is where he says those words. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. It took five years from that moment, at least five years, if not more before the apostolics ever got back to Samaria. Philip, the young man, he's the next one that comes. It took five years. Don't you imagine that that woman that had met Jesus at that well and all the people she told her testimony to, don't you imagine they were gathered, that they were in some of Philip's meetings, that they were some of the first people to get baptized in Jesus' name and receive the Holy Ghost? And don't you imagine they met Philip with the question when he got there, where in the world have you been? What took so long for you to reach us with the message that Jesus invested in you? Could I say there are some people out in the world that right now... You think they would turn you down flat. But what you don't know is they just went through a divorce. They just went through a suicide attempt. They just went through some terrible situation. Got some awful news. And what you can't see, you can't see through the Samaritan surface. But if you could look at their heart, Jesus is working on them. Lift up your hands. I'm done. Would you lift up your voice higher than your hands? And would you pray? Because there's a commissioning at WINS conference. There's a commissioning in this meeting. It's to get out of your comfort zone. Jesus is comfortable anywhere. Jesus can work anywhere. Jesus can give revelation to anyone. Jesus can do miracles anywhere. It's not his comfort zone. It's our comfort zone that we've got to break out of. Take somebody by the hand, lift those hands together, and pray for them. Pray that God would use them. Pray that God would anoint them. Pray that God would propel them into a new dimension. A new dimension of soul winning. A new dimension of harvest. A new dimension of Bible studies.
He's a God of promises. He'll never break his promises towards us. He comes and meets us right at the point of our need. He finds us right where we need him. But the beautiful thing, Brother Woodward, is he allows us to participate in how he wants to bless us. He causes us to take action. He causes us to move. He causes us to partner with him. And we're grateful that we have a God that loves us so much that he calls us to participate in what he wants to do. He's a covenant-keeping God. He's a promise-keeping God. Always faithful. Always consistent. We can trust him. We can trust your hand, God.
Thank you, Jesus. 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 We adore you today, oh God. We lift our hearts and our hands unto you, Lord. We bless the name of Jesus. Almighty God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I feel like one of the things that the Lord is doing in these last days with the church is teaching us how to just linger in the presence of God. You can't microwave a move of God. You have to learn to linger in His presence. And there's such an atmosphere here that God can just wrap His arms of love around every one of us and embrace us and just cause fears to dissipate, encouragement to come. I believe there's a healing that's a theme throughout this conference that the Lord is wanting to touch His people and heal us and strengthen us. And I feel like the Lord is here doing that right now. Would you praise Him one more time and just lift up your hands and your voice? Come near, Lord, come near. We need you, God, more than our necessary food. We need you, oh God. We hunger and thirst after you, Lord. with your message one more time. We bless the name of Jesus. Almighty oh, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. 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 Yes. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Yes, Lord. Mm. Pastor David Elms is the pastor of Cathedral of Pentecost in the Fort Lauderdale area. He is a leading voice and has been for a number of years among young adults in the United Pentecostal Church. He's one of the founders of the Winds Conference. He and his wife, Sister Melanie Elms, and their family and their church is a big part of the Winds Conference. I wouldn't want to do it without them. Brother Elms is such a he's such a quality person to be around and to be with, an encourager, a 
preacher of the gospel, a man that you can trust your life with. We love Brother David Elm so much. We are so delighted he is coming now to preach to us the word of God. Would you welcome to this podium, Pastor David Elms, in Jesus' name. Praise the Lord. My, it feels awesome in this house. What we're feeling is so deep and rich and pure. Brother Woodward, thank you for being a vessel that opened and poured out of your soul, your innermost being. A powerful word from the Lord. It's truly a joy to be with you all here on this glorious morning. I begin to think about how many people are here not often, in fact, in my lifetime, twice has the General Conference come to Florida. And so it was blessed to be in Miami Beach, I believe, in 74. Was that the year, Brother Urshan? 72, I apologize. Yes, on that year, my father-in-law and Bob Meyer and Steve Fender and others rented mopeds and drove all night on the beaches of Miami just to make sure that the Holy Ghost was up all night too. But then it had not returned here until this year. And for you to have both been blessed to be able to be a part of a dynamic general convention and then also be here today. I know the people of the Cathedral of Pentecost that I'm honored to serve as pastor. They had to wrestle. Yes, God bless. I love those precious people. They had to wrestle between schedules and dates and jobs and some are driving up after work and before work and they're driving back because they're managing these moments. But I want to give all of you great appreciation for what you're doing. Uh, this team, isn't this worship team powerfully ushering us into the presence of the Lord? Worship is such a powerful component, and it must be what we do when we come to church. So I want to thank uh, Brother Jeff Walthall and my wife and the team of so many dynamic, consecrated musicians. I love this man right here, Brother Kevin Howard, the choral director of Urshan College. We're so blessed to have you a part of WINS Conference. I love you and I'm very proud of you. And we're so thankful for all the people in our lives. I have three mentors that have always had veto power in my life. I've published their phone numbers to my church through my 30 years of pastoring there. I've announced them over the pulpit. If ever they felt, the people felt maybe I was getting wayward, they could call any one of those numbers. And I had submitted my life to these men uh, they could have the veto power to remove me from the pulpit. Uh, and so I want to thank them today. My father, David Elms, my father-in-law, Billy Hale, and my mentor, J.W. Harrell. All of these men are on the talk to them like I wish I could. But I'm so thankful they're still in my life right now. And I bless them. I pray you have somebody in your life that you would trust with veto power in your life. I pray you would have that. 
it's a powerful place to be. And of course, we thank the Lord. I thank the Lord for my wife. I love her and my four children. It's a joy watching them all stand up here and worship and worship the Lord with all of their heart. It is such an humbling honor to have that. I love this church. East Wind Pentecostal Church is so dynamic. Myers. I love them so very much. Precious people of vision and passion. It's such an honor to be at this conference and paired between <laughs> Brother Woodward and Brother Hirsch. <laughs> Does anybody feel for I don't know if you've heard the two cows. They were in the pasture and a cow truck drove by a milk truck. And on the side, it had a sign that said sanitized, pure milk, grade A, sanitized, pasteurized. And it is uh, uh, homogenized, vitamin enriched, taken from contempt cows. And one cow looked at the other and said, you feel inadequate, doesn't it? Sort of the way I feel packaged between these preachers today. If you'll open your Bibles with me to Mark, Mark the 11th chapter, we shall go to the word of the Lord. I am presenting a PowerPoint today, and I'll tell you, I'm not necessarily a PowerPoint preacher, but there are times I feel like it will help us arrive where we need to go so we will have some pictures to help our mind as we journey through this story that I believe the Lord has impressed upon my heart. Mark, the 11th chapter, carries us to a significant moment before the cross. This is the last time Jesus will go to Jerusalem unhurried and unbothered. And he goes there and he comes in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out from that, from them, cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thee. My subject for just a few moments out here for the harvest. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for these people. I am a weakened vessel, but I need your assistance. And I thank you that this day you shall speak according to the furtherance of your gospel in Jesus' precious name. And let the church say amen. You may be seated in Jesus' name.
It has intrigued me for all of my life that Jesus got to throw a temper tantrum. I don't know if it's one of the favorite parts of the Bible that I have. And of course, who would ever say that this was a temper tantrum? I, I don't want to demean what he did here. I do not believe the Lord at all through a temper tantrum. But this is the closest that we are able to see Jesus in a moment that we all <laughs> can relate to. Mm. I can relate to the Lord like this when I'm driving through traffic in South Florida. I can relate to the Lord like this at oftentimes in my life uh, that I feel like maybe there is a table that ought to be tossed. And so I want to be like Jesus all my life. I've desired that. Therefore, at times I need to uh, uh, be a part of this process and uh, braid a rope. But I, I do believe that it's possible that this cleansing of the Lord has been underappreciated in the scriptural understanding because it is a, a very important event. But what I want to point out is it's not just one event. Uh, this happened twice. The German theologians of yesteryear uh, were very convinced that the Bible authors didn't really know what they were talking about, so they cobbled stories together and threw the myths of old together. And so they had mixed up their words when they described this temple cleansing. And so while Matthew, Mark, and Luke talked about this moment, he enters the temple right before his death and does this moment. John comes along much later and he adds something to the record that is stunning. He tells us that this event also happened immediately following the Lord's temptation in the wilderness. When you read the layout of the Gospel of John, he takes Jesus, he gets him baptized in his record. John baptizes him, John the Baptist, and he goes into the wilderness for 40 days for temptation. In the wilderness, the devil comes and offers many or three specific things to Jesus. But following that temptation, Jesus goes directly before the changing of water into wine, before preaching in his hometown, before any wonderful works, he goes to the temple and he purges the temple. He does the same thing two times. Now, I like the idea that he's turned over tables. Uh, some surmise it was just one time. I believe biblically they were not lost when they told us the chronology happened twice. The first event after the temptation, the last event before the trial of the cross, both times a bookend at the beginning and the end. Is this event that's so curious? Uh, and so while I love it and I understand the turning over of the tables, and I've used it at times to talk about how the kingdom of heaven <laughs> suffereth violence, <laughs> and the violent take it by force, and I have a little model in my story of Jesus doing this. I think there is more to be understood here than a catchphrase for a shout-out. It's more than a tweetable moment. And so I want us to take a little journey, and I feel like the entire layout of these sermons have been uh, like the Lord is giving to us a diamond this week. But what makes a diamond beautiful is it has many facets. 
It's the same beauty. It's the same prism of color. But you see the dynamic when the facets show up. So I bring my facet today. Brother Urshan and Brother Myers preached last night about the process of the ways of God. And of course we see in the cleansing of the temple, the Lord laid out the cleansing both two separate times. Three, the synoptic gospels said it was right before the cross. The atoptic gospel, John, he said it happened first thing after the trial. But to understand this, we need to have a grip on the situation of that day. The Germans called it the Sitz im Leben. It's just fancy phraseology that means situation in life. You have to know the context of what's going on. So if you will transport yourself with me and learn a little bit about the layout of the land. We see Israel on your left side there. There's the layout of the tribes. You can see here where they came across from the land of, of Israel. And when Israel entered through that land of Gad that we heard preached about last night, Manasseh, the half-tribe of Manasseh is up there. Gad is down there and Reuben is further down south right there. But they came across at that river where you see the word Shiloh. That's where Israel had the water stopped and came across the river. Uh, this is more than a map you're looking at. This is the story of our people. They came across, and when they finally got across the river, they got to this place known as Shiloh. There, they situated the golden box and the tabernacle, and they laid out the articles of the altar and the beautiful cistern of water whereby the priest would wash. And they got it and kept it there. But Slowly they forgot the glory of God. They forgot that they were once bondmen in Egypt. They began to eat the corn of the land. They began to get it like that. They had houses they did not build and wells they did not dig. And they were eating from fruit trees they did not plant. It was nice having corn in the place of manna. And in the process of that, we go through the book of Judges because they wandered over and over again away from God. And in that wandering, the Lord sent people to gather him back. Because they would not keep their way pure, the Philistines, which were situated down on the coast on the southern part of the land, the Philistines down here constantly bothered the people of God. These people were interbred with the people of God and intermixed with the people of God. And so God sent judges. Of all the judges, maybe the one that stands out the most would be Samson. Samson was an intriguing fellow, but he was the first real Nazarite that is known of as a permanent Nazarite. Some Nazareth vows were temporary, but there were three men that had the permanent Nazarite vow. And the first one was Samson. He had a Nazareth vow that he would be dedicated to God. His mother had been barren. Uh, then God sent Samson, a, a curious fellow, but he was there to help the people of God stay with the God of the people. And of course, the prophet said, he shall begin to deliver Israel that's all he ever did because the people wandered back. And finally, in the midst of the mess, God rose up another son of a barren woman, another 
permanent Nazarite. His name was Samuel. The Masoretic text doesn't tell us has of his Nazarite covenant, but it's very clear in the Septuagint that Samuel was a man that wouldn't touch the grape to eat and to drink. And he was a man who kept the Nazarite vow. And of course, this Samuel, God used to restore the glory of his presence to Israel. All at Shiloh, it all happened. This time period of Samuel, the time period of Samson. It was at the doors of the temple in Shiloh where Samuel's mother, Hannah, fell at the ground and cried. The prophet wasn't acquainted with travailing kind of prayer. He could not recognize what he saw. So when he saw her praying like that, he thought she was drunk. He was more acquainted with being around drunkenness than the travailing prayer of God's people. So he smote her. Get up, you drunken woman. And she said, oh, sir, I am not drunk. I just want a son. And so God sent her a son into the hill country of Ephraim. And Samuel went and he sat every day at the same place where his mother had been smacked. Every day he sat at the door of the temple in Shiloh. But the people lost the understanding of the glory of God. Until finally that temple ark they thought was just a toy. They sent it down for a battle and it got taken at Ashdod. Finally, it went back up, and I'm not going to take you on the whole journey because I, I want to take you through. But you've got to understand the story of God's house is a big deal. Shiloh, it was there for so long, and God wooed that little lass of Israel. He tried to let her love him, but she left him. So finally, the, the trinket, this this emblem of the ark and the glory. It went out of their power and went down to Ashdod. They finally got it back. And they finally, after many, many trials and storms and deaths and struggles, the ark was taken by King David to Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. If I forget thee, let my tongue cleave to the mouth to the roof of my mouth. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Uh, who shall know the ways of God? This Jerusalem is sung about and loved and, and celebrated. And even today you can get on El Al in Miami and be there through Tel Aviv in just a few hours. That's the Jerusalem of David. But here's what I want you to know. The David Jerusalem that you see is over here. This is a picture of what it was like when David got it. And I want you to pay attention because David took this little spot up on this corner. On the left side is a mountain known as Mount Moriah. That's where Temple Mount is today. This is an accurate depiction as it was in the days of David. See that mountain up on the side there? That's where Abraham had taken his son Isaac and offered him as a sacrifice. It was somewhere on that hill that a ram was caught that God had provided as a sacrifice. This hill is watered by a, a pool of Siloam, a fountain that geyser of water is fed there. There's, there's a mountain on the right side you see across from Moriah. That's, that's a place known as 
Golgotha, that is, or Gethsemane, I should say. And over there, there's all of these places are real today. So what is this all about? Why is God's house so big? Why should we understand these things about the temple? And uh, is, is it all just the talk of a furniture store? Is it something we should spend time about? The layout, it's been talked about throughout scripture. The amount of space given to the dimensions of the tabernacle, are that's unbelievable. He gave all of space five words. When he talked about the stars, he just said, and he made the stars also. But when it talks about the dimensions of the tabernacle, the measurements, the precision, all of the dictates of God, is it, it's there. It's There's a, a holy matrix that's happening that I want to get a grip on about this tabernacle. Is it just nostalgia or is there more to it than that? Even when Satan is taking Jesus on his tour, he finds that one of the stops that he wants to take Jesus is to that mountain, that silly little hill beside this this city that we know, now know as the city of David. Uh, if Jesus pays this temple, not much mind, then we will move on with our presentation today. Uh, because Jesus said that city would come down. Why should we pay attention to it today? He said not a stone would remain. But here's the thing about this, this story that I bring to you is that I'm talking about Jesus going and taking the time. A slow burn is in him. When he's walking to this, this place, this sacred place, this place where he said he would put his name. But he's coming differently this time. As a boy, a 12-year-old, he had confounded the doctors and the lawyers in this place. But now, the first movable event, remarkable event, after the wilderness temptation is, let's go track to the temple. Like a focused rocket, he walks there. But this is different today, because it's God incognito. He has sat in that place many days. They have worshipped him in that place. But now he's undercover. He's walking as a man. He's walking into a house that was built for him. He's going to a place now in divine disguise. And all the people who love him so dearly, they cannot recognize him because they imagine that he's in there in up the hill, through the outer court, and up past the inner court, and into the holy place, and beyond the veil, and that the God of creation is settled on a seat named mercy. So I want to take you on a little trip today. For a moment, this is the best depiction that we can find of the Temple Mount as it was constituted in Jesus' day. And this was an amazing place, this Temple Mount of Jesus. They always entered from this area down here. This is the baptismal tanks that if you want to get purified, need to get purified, you can walk up there and dip yourself into the righteousness of God and be purified for entrance into the Temple Mount. 
if you were coming from out of town, then you would come in from this eastern gate. That was the way Jesus entered when he came from Lazarus's house. This is the way Jesus entered when he came down on the back of a colt that had never been written. Written. He came through this place. It's it's blocked up today if you would go there. And there are graves situated on the other side because strangely some prophets said that that door would not be entered again until the Messiah would come. You can go and see these things now, but am I just taking you on an archaeological tour? Or is there more to be learned down here in this region? The scribes and the Pharisees lived. Uh, the people of status, the Sadducees, lived up in this region. And they had their own private personal bridge whereby those of the elite could walk unshuffled and unhurried all the way across this nice bridge into the temple. No place in all the world like Temple Mount. It was built by Herod. Herod built this on the foundations of David's beginning and Solomon's construction. And then the story of the temple was wasted until Nehemiah came back to establish the walls and Ezra reestablished the goings. And then after a while, there was the tremendous traumatic thing that happened in this one page that's between your testaments that we don't pay a lot of attention to. But there's a lot of stuff that happened here in the real world in this one little page. During that time is where we get Hanukkah. During that time was where Antiochus came and sat a pig on the sacrifice of that place right there. And it was at that place where Judas Maccabeus decided, we will not take it anymore. And he drew his sword and cut every cooperating backslidden priest and decided we will take this mountain. They hid in the walls of that chamber until they withstood all of the attacks from the echoes of the kingdom of Alexander the Great. All in this one little page right here. It's more than just a building. It's something significant that we're looking at. And so we see this, this remarkable place that now Herod, with all of his building prowess, Herod the Great, had the wealth of the world in his hands, a wealth that was the fuel by, by the frankincense trade. It was the oil of that day. They had that's why Solomon had money. That's why Herod had money. It was be, not because of his great taxation policies. It was because the frankincense came through Judea. Because everybody in the Europe region wanted it to play for their gods and to burn to their gods. But it grew on trees down in the Arabian region. So they would pull up the trees. And this was the portal through which the trade of frankincense went. And all of the fuel of that funds of frankincense built all through Judea amazing aqueducts and the, the halls and the heights of Herod and so all of that money is now on display bigger flat foundation you're looking at than anywhere in all of the Roman world there's never been a place as big as flat as that in Rome not the Roman Colosseum this is bigger than anything in Rome bigger Herod did it big. He wanted to have this draw to get people there. He was part Hebrew and he was part worldling. And so he tried to mix it and figure the way through. So this is where Jesus, the creator of the universe, is walking undercover. This is where he decides to clear the temple. This outer court 
It was known as the Strangers Court, the Court of the Gentiles. This, this layout is sequential. It's in succession. When you enter in, you enter this region. This is a massive area where it served in that day like a foyer to the place where everybody wanted to be. They exchanged money there. That's where the offering happened. That's where the widow gave her two mites. That's where Jesus confounded them. That's where Anna saw baby Jesus. That's where all three gospel writers tell us Jesus taught in this region. This was where the prayer between the Pharisee and the publican was heard. This was where the closest that uh, the Queen of Sheba could ever get to the presence of God. When she came to Solomon's place, that's where she had to stop. You can't go beyond here. This was the place where uh, up 14 steps beyond that red line, a wall stood at the foot of those steps about five feet tall. It was known as the balustrade. Are you still with me today? I feel like I'm, a, I'm in chemistry class right now. Up 14 steps, at the foot of those steps was a five-foot wall to the family court, the court of the exclusives, the court of the women and small children. But that five-foot wall, biblically, is referred to as the middle wall of partition. Paul said in Ephesians, there was something that happened to that wall. It had separated those far away and the stranger, those alienated from the citizenship of Israel. It was known as the balustrade. It separated from the holy from the common, the clean from the unclean. The wall stopped the aliens from the Israelites, the whole from the blemished. The elite can pass here. And posted on that wall, they have discovered the exact stone that was on that wall. You're looking at it. Only two have been found. More were there. That is the very stone upon which was written these words, both in Latin and in Greek. Let no foreigner enter within the paraffin and the partition which surrounds the temple precincts. Anyone caught will be held accountable for his ensuing death. That's the placard Jesus walked past. How serious was this placard? Well, I'll tell you how serious it was. Paul, if you know Acts 29 or 20, 21, I believe it was, Paul is arrested because he's in a period of Cleansing and purification. They've made him shave his head. They've made him go through a period of reunification with Israel because he unfortunately had been among the Gohim, the Gentiles, the aliens. And somebody surmised of the Jews of Asia that Paul has taken a young man named Trophimus beyond the balustrade. How dare Paul violate the sacred space and take this man there and even though he was not guilty they thought he was and if it wasn't for a centurion to grab Paul he would have been taken out right then that's how serious they were about guarding this space from the impure there we go and so from there we move on up to the court of the family that's where the women and the children would come of the purity of the tribes of Israel. Beyond that is the court of the men. 
What an amazing place. This was a great court. This was a holy place. This was a mighty place where they came and made a way. In this court stood the brazen altar. And that's where they sacrificed the bulls and the goats and the turtle doves. And when you brought your sacrifice, it burned in this region. If you were a Gentile that wanted to bring a sacrifice, you could not watch the burning. You had to trust that they were burning your meal offering or your sacrifice up in the holy precinct of the men. In this place, all the priests wore uniforms. They changed clothes in the area of the separation. The priests could not wear their priestly uniform outside this precinct. They all wore nice uniforms. It was there that the cunning work that God had told Moses about to wear, they wore it there. All of this beautiful, glorious work, the gold, the brass, the dignified and orderly processes that were laid out point by point by God. It's all tailored with order and compliance. It's the court of compliance. It's the place where everybody does what everybody is supposed to do. The table of showbread has fresh bread. The altar of incense is kept pure. The golden lampstand is kept bright. And interestingly, as we learn about this precious place, we all are acquainted with this area if you teach Bible studies. I teach search for truth. I teach exploring God's word. We spend one lesson at least on this area of the tabernacle because it's beautiful. When we pray the tabernacle, our prayer starts here. We pray the post. He's wonderful. Counselor. The mighty God. The everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. We pray the table of showbread. We pray the alt. Do I have a witness in the house? We pray all the glory of the golden lamp step and stand. And then we pray the veil. And then we go as if we could. We presume to walk beyond the veil and go up to the mercy seat and look at it like we have eyes that can do that. Here, there is one man in these glorious garments that come. And these priests would wear their uniforms. There's the uniform of the common priest on the right. A special presentation of his goodness. And on the left, only one man would ever wear that, the Urim and the Thummim, hanging on the shoulders that would glow when the glory came. I, I hope you're with me. And so, I love this place, so oh, I want to go here. Is it possible that one day, maybe, we could put on the breastplate? Is it possible that that breastplate of the 12 tribes that has the stones that speak, and all of the golden scepter and the mitre of God, that is on this by God's order and his plan. This was not a haphazard thing. God did it. God made it. God planned it. God put it there. But the thing about it that we miss is that there are requirements there. And it must be perfect. You must be uh, checked, weighed, balanced, found right. Just speak to Aaron and say, said God in Leviticus 21.17. A man of your lineage throughout the ages who has a defect shall not draw near to offer food 
of his God. There were exclusivities to be in the priesthood. Strictures and structures that stopped one. That when the child was born and he might be in the right lineage, if for some reason the parent saw an eye begin to wander, they panicked and prayed. Because just a lazy eye would eliminate your possibility of ever serving and ever getting the uniform of God. If you ever happened to have a skin condition, it would eliminate you. If you had a rash that strangely came, you had to turn in your garments. Never a blemish, never a skin rash. If you happened to hit your eye playing as a child and it blinded from the throwing of a stone, you would never serve. If you had an uneven walk, if you couldn't walk with great aplomb and dignity, you were not allowed to serve or even wear the garment. If you could not lift your hands evenly, maybe as a child you fell off the back of a mule while playing and tore a labrum, uh, and you couldn't lift your arm right, you were not allowed because symmetry is important in the sanctuary of God. Everything must be pure, compliant, in order. And if you don't have that, the scripture said, they shall withdraw. And so events of chance and time had priests removed at times, turn in their garment. Sometimes it only lasted a day. Sometimes a week. Sometimes a cataract came and you were finished. Sometimes months and years. We love the access. I do. I like being a status holder with certain places. I like the clubs that come along. I appreciate it. One, years ago, I used to have status with an airline. Delta, I enjoyed getting that free bump up back when I had that. It was a good thing. We are creatures of hierarchy. And uh, God made that in us. He gave us a desire for placement. But remember when I talked about the three permanent Nazarites? It's amazing how God used these messy fellows. <laughs> uh, because Samson, who would let him be on their platform? <clears throat> I don't know if he's off a time of rest yet in my church. Yet God seems to find out that when his hair grows again, that's all it takes. And then Samuel, do you know where he was born? In the ugliest place in Israel's history, in the hill country of Ephraim. When the Benjamites would not come and in the midnight hour they commit an attempt of sodomy. And they go deeper and darker than that to an all-night rape until a priest, a Levite, cuts up his love and sends pieces of her body to the entirety of the country. Read about it in Judges 19 through 21. It's from that place where Samuel is born. Born in the middle of that ugliness among God's people. Nobody wants to go to the hill country because that's where all of the corruption of God's people abides. And yet out of there comes Samuel. And then along comes the last gentleman that is a permanent Nazarite. It's interesting when you learn about him, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, it tells us in Luke the third chapter. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. Philip his brother being the tetrarch of Eteria and of the region round about Trachonitis. Licinius being the tetrarch of Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest. The word of the Lord came to John, son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Did you catch it? Maybe I want to show you. Can I have some help from the dudes up here? If I can get the guys to come up here. Zach, I want you to be it's Tiberius Caesar. You're quite an amazing guy. Do you know where you live? Rome. You're the second of all Caesars. Your daddy was the first. They want to make you a god. You won't let them make you a god because you're shy about your power. But that's who you are. Come on, Brother Crowder. I want you to be Pontius Pilate for a moment. I don't know if this has been your greatest day. But would you be Pontius Pilate? Do you know how many people wish they knew you? Do you know how many people are around, hovering, trying to get close to you? Are you aware of the Antonia Fortress where your guards live and the palace that you live in situated on the far western side of the city? You're a somebody. There is an exclusive walk for you in the city of Jerusalem where you don't have to go among the riffraff of creativity. You can walk from your palace straight to the temple. You're somebody. Come on up here. My dear Philip, Philip, the brother of Herod, you, no, this is Herod, no, Pont, no, Tiberius Caesar, you're Pontius Pilate, you're Herod, oh, you're a builder, man, you have built amazing things, Herod, everybody wants your money, I'm telling you, you are so powerful in the country, they are amazed by your power, now, there's other things we're not going to talk about, but you're somebody else, come on up here. I need another man. Come on up here. I'm, I'm getting some somebodies. That's it. Come on up, Johnny. Joe, I'm going to need all of you. I, I need you to see because when our Bible reading is going on, we just kind of hurry to get to John. Because we love John. We know about John's stuff. But the word of the Lord is not haphazard in telling us some things. Come on up. We've got Tiberius Caesar. We've got Pilate. We've got Herod. Philip, his brother. You know how powerful you are, bud? You had your wife stolen by that bad chap right over there, okay? Herod stole your wife, and John the Baptist was upset about it for you, okay? But let me tell you something, bud. You're in such power, you've got two regions of the country. You're the Tetrarch, which means a governed by four. You're, re you're governing two of those. Powerful man. And you, come on up here, Johnny. I'm going to let you be, you're going to be... Uh, Licinius, you're the Tetrarch of Abilene. Abilene is up in the Northland. The echoes of Alexander the Great are still under you. You have all the structure and architecture of that region. It's under you. So when you want grandeur, all that Alexander the Great built, it's at your banquet halls. It's your banquet. You're somebody. Come here, John. John the Baptist, son of Zacharias. Let me tell you something, bud. I need you to go right over into that corner. You're not anywhere, but you're in the wilderness. Everybody thinks God cares about status. Too many think God's trying to get on the back room and in the green room and at the front area and in the VIP section. But 
God incognito is walking into his place. And in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the word of the Lord came on a journey. He's not impressed, but he wants to mention what he walked by. I walked past Rome and I saw all that was there. I came up here to Pontius Pilate. I know you. I've been around you. You'll be used by me in a little bit, but I'm going to move on. I see you, Herod. With all that you've done, you built this house. You built this. I see that, Herod. I see you. We have forgotten a couple of people. I need two more. Isaiah, come on. Uh, Philip, you're powerful. You're amazing. Come on, I need two guys standing right at the pulpit. Yeah, Lysanias, all the echoes of Alexander the Great, you're amazing. I'm the word of the Lord, and I've walked past all of that. But let's, let me tell you where else I'm going. I'm going to the temple. Ananias, I mean Annas and Caiaphas, they have access to the temple treasury. They have the power to walk into the Holy of Holies. They are the ones that are serving in the garments of God. They are the ones everybody in the holy place wish they could get close to. They have their own holy palace whereby the ways of righteous Moses is built in the very bedwork of their home. They come righteously. But in the year of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness. What am I saying? You guys, thank you for helping me. You can go down. What am I saying? I'm telling you that it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your struggles may be. Please come with me out of the status places. Please come past the middle wall of partition. Will you walk with me down where Jesus went? So why, Jesus, why are you turning over tables? Why? What's going on here? Why are you among the marred and the broken and the priest that's been defrocked? Why are you among the lazy eyes and the bent backs? Why are you among those with skin rashes? Why are you among those who have been put out? The long-term diseased and the short-term impure. Why are you among the women the reason of life cannot go into the court of the women. Why are you here? Because this was the only place on earth where his name could be touched by the lame and the blind and the outcast and the helpless and the hopeless. The foyer was holy too. The out place where the heckling and the meddling happened was his house too. And he said, what you have done is you built that middle wall and thought that I'm only somewhere back beyond the veil. But I am here incognito and I have noticed something about my house. There's something happening out here that's not right. I'm out where the schizophrenics are. I'm out where the oppressed are. I'm out where people have mind ailments. I'm out among... A Syrophoenician mother can pray here. A good business.
this man who happens to be a Samaritan can pray here. It's, it's unrefined. It's inferior. It's where only, the only place the queen of Sheba could pray. It's the only place the widow of Zarephath could go. It's the only place Cornelius could walk. Because the closer one gets to God, the clearer things become. This is not a message against the clarity of his order or his sanctity and his plan and his way of compliance. I want all of those things. But there is something in our Bible study charts and our prayers that we have neglected. I'm afraid we forget that his temple, his house starts beyond the court of exclusivities the hierarchy of holiness starts where are the infirmed and the diseased and the undone there is a demonic discrimination that's afoot in the house of God when we don't stand by the front of the house and watch for those who come in with the tuck head watch who those who only sit on the back row and hurry out after church there is something wrong when you don't understand the vulnerabilities of this life because God is doing something beyond the boundaries of your mind he's doing something out there do you know life has complexities I'm drawn to a close what am I saying to you guys I'm telling you life has complexities I wish everything was clear I wish all of God's initiatives I could understand. I wish I could always understand when God gets ambiguous. I don't understand why sometimes we're in the out here. The out here of the wilderness. The out here with the infirmed. The out here with the undone. I don't like being the out here any more than you do. Do you know that there's two things that the devil wants for you? He wants to first of all keep you from starting. But secondly, he wants to keep you from staying going. Starting power and staying power are not the same thing. Demas, my fellow laborer. Demas! Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Three points on a curve by which we see the downward fall of a disciple. I have, from Pentecost past, traveled with the Lanyworth Trio. And I sang in churches all across this nation. I sang in the background. Uh, they think I've fallen and I can't get up. I hope I didn't have ambulances coming shortly. <laughs> I was in the trio with Shelton Lover and Lana Marie Wolf, Lanita Wolf, Tina Alford, Ronnie Stutes, Kevin Heron. We traveled all around this country. They just couldn't find a studio good enough to capture the qualities of my voice. But we sing songs like my house is full, but my field is empty. Who will go and work for me today? Seems my children all want to stay around my table. And no one wants to get out here in the field. 
Another song we sang that I saw altars fled with. And I, again and again, I was amazed by it. Lord, please move me with compassion for the lost, I pray. Millions who are lost and cannot find their way. Melt my calloused heart with love, no matter what the cost. Lord, please move me with compassion for the lost. The devil wants to usurp your assignment. Paul spoke of it like this. Your faith made void and the promise made of none effect. Here's the problem. There were some laws in Israel's harvest that at harvest time they were not to return to the field for a forgotten sheaf. Nor go shake the olive tree a second time. Nor pick the vineyard twice. Because God had built into his kingdom space for the stranger. Those who had lost their husband unexpectedly or buried a child, the weak and the reliant, they also got to be in the harvest because complications come. And the revival that I see coming is not cuddly. It is not uncomplicated. This is a generation of complications. Pain and loss and betrayal. I wish it was all buttoned up, figured out. But it's messy, messed up. But out there, Jesus said, that's my house too. Where life is thorny, in the middle of stigma, where those who have been shut out from a chaotic childhood, those who come to church and don't want anyone to know about the rupture in their family, that one that wears extra long sleeves, not because the church preaches it, but because alopecia is all over all the time. Those who have an embarrassing autoimmune disease, they want to be in the inner sanctum, but you had to turn in your uniform. The closest you feel like you can walk is the back five rows. There's some that come to our churches that had a secret abortion that nobody knew about. And now they can't have babies. And every time they walk in the doors, they think, God's passed me by and I'm still paying for what I did. Your dad was a preacher man, but he was different at home. And so you lost your faith because you saw daddy when he was acting out. You had a wayward relationship. Your marriage was good for 10 years. And then something snapped. Now you're separated. and Now you're divorced. But you still love God and you go to church. Sometimes your ex comes to church too. Once wasers used to beers. Ex-pastors' wives. Estranged fathers. You lived in a backstreet lifestyle. You're diminished. And so you have benched yourself. You put yourself on the shelf. I'm pulling you off the shelf today.
At the beginning of 2021, I was impressed by the Holy Ghost to call a renowned preacher that had a massive fall in our movement. By the help of the Holy Ghost, in the process of talking, I found out it had been eight years since his massive fall. And I've heard the voice of his mother talking to me, saying, Would you reach to my baby boy? I flew him down to be with me. I had him speak off the video. And I talked to him for hours. And I said, Sir, it's complicated. It's messy. But the harvest still needs you. I have friends that might watch this message that I went to Bible school with that have been backslid and they became agnostic. I'm telling you, God's calling to you right now. And he's saying from Davy Gravy, come back home. He hath made room for you. You wrote great songs of anointing and power. Don't fold your arms and shut in the door. Get out there into the harvest. Because the harvest is calling. Remember that picture of old Jerusalem? Do you remember that picture that had the plot where David was and the city? All of that. I'll go back to it. I'll show you this picture because I want you to understand. This picture tells us what David saw. This picture was the place where David grew up in the anointing of the Holy Ghost. See that picture? In this picture, right there, is a mountain. That's where Temple Mount was. That's where it was. That's where David decided it will be placed and Solomon built it. That's a mountain, Moriah. Nearby, not a few miles away, is Mount Carmel. The Mount of Transfiguration is close by. It's a nation and a Bible of mountains. But Jesus walked to that mountain and purged that outer court and said, You've taken my house. And you've made it a den of thieves. You know what a thief does? He wants what is yours and what is his. You can't be anointed anymore. You can't be used anymore. You can't teach any more Bible studies. You can't, you can't, you can't. Your daughter just got multiple sclerosis after all your years of serving God. Now you don't even know if you should have faith. What's going on? You just had a, stra a strange happening to a child that's unbelievable to, to understand. After all you've done for God, now you're out there in the middle of the mess. And God's saying, I'm coming for you because I need you out here for the harvest. And so God incognito, I'm done. God incognito walks into that house before some other event. An event that even he didn't want. If it's possible, don't get me in that mess. If it's possible, I, I don't want, I don't want this messy cup. Take it. All right, disciples. Could y'all pray with me? I'm facing a mess. Is it possible that you could keep me from this? But you know what they did? They, they crucified him. They talked about him on that mountain. They shouted crucify him on that mountain. 
the place they built for him on those steps they said crucify him and they took him where are you going well you going to a great mountain somewhere no it's not a memorable mountain it's a place that kind of looks like a skull it's a different mountain than any historical mountain that's been mentioned in my sacred scrolls what are you going to do there who are you going with a couple of thieves what you doing with thieves i'm going to reach to them what are you doing up there they're hanging you on a mountain if you've ever been to Calvary, it's not much of a mountain outside the camp bearing his reproach. The last thing that Jesus did was go out there. And when they hung him high and spread him wide and he hung his head and then he died, he did it out there for you and for me. Somebody's in this house right now. You've been carrying a, a undercover pain. And God has seen you wrestle with it. You didn't think you could be used. You didn't think that God was there for you. And I'm calling you out to action today. I'm calling you off the shelf. You're embarrassed of a family hiccup that keeps showing up. But you are called off the shelf and off the bench. I'm saying come into this place because it's harvest time. Say not yet. There are yet four months. And then cometh the harvest. Out here for the harvest where my people go. Shall we stand all over this building? I don't understand it all. I don't understand to have the energy to even try. But I'm telling you, you've been handpicked for the harvest. What do we stand? What do we reach out to him? No throwaways. No throwaways in this kingdom. No throwaways in this kingdom. No throwaways in this kingdom. you again and again Cause all that I have is a hallelujah Bring your broken heart It's a harvest. So I and praise you again. all that I have is a hallelujah. And I know it's not much. What was your first calling?
together and lift our voices across this place for he is worthy of the praise he deserves the glory he deserves the glory for from him are all things and to him are all things can we give him praise right now blessed be the mighty name of Jesus blessed be the mighty name of Jesus 
Hallelujah. As we make our way to our seats for the remaining of this wonderful, wonderful and glorious day. Have you been blessed of the Lord today already? My, my. I just don't know when we have been more enriched by the Word of God than we have this morning. Brother Woodward, Brother Elms, can we give God praise for the Word we have received today? God is speaking to us. I feel like, I feel like the revelator. I feel like saying, He that hath an ear, let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. We are so thankful for what God is doing, and I am very honored to be able to bring our next speaker. This is a, a great honor to me personally. Uh, he's been my buddy all my life, and uh, you know him. Uh, many of you follow him, uh, and the Biblos Network has been such a blessing to the body of Christ, and not and in the and in the outer courts. And in the borderlands and to the Samaritans. And, uh, what a, what a mighty man of God and, uh, my brother is. And it's a great honor and a, a joy that he is here at Winds 2022. He is the namesake of our much beloved grandfather. And he carries that mantle well. And he is ministering to the nations and around the world. And you have seen him from a distance and have heard him preach and teach and expound the word of the Lord. Uh, but I've known him all my life, and he is a Christian. What you see is what you get. Whether he's in the pulpit or on YouTube or right here in your company shaking your hand, he's the real deal. And he's bringing the word of God to us today. And I am so excited to receive from the word of the Lord today from my brother, Pastor Nathaniel A. Urshan II from Durham, North Carolina. Could you come? And let's receive him with a warm hand clap of appreciation. Let's clap our hands into the Lord one more time and give Him praise. Let's just continue to love Him in this house right now. Can we do that all over this place? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the word that we've heard. Thank you for the spirit that's saturated this place of worship. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a beautiful and sacred atmosphere. My, 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 we have been caught up today to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And it is an honor, it's an honor to be with you today and to worship the Lord and to join in with you at this Great Winds Conference. I hope, I hope people realize what has been given already thus far these words that have been spoken beginning with pastor Myers oh, I give honor to him and his precious wife amen and my I caught the tail end of that and I could already feel the Holy Ghost moving and then my brother 
Joel Urshan, who is speaking in this hour to the world and to the church, what thus saith the word of the Lord. Stirring, moving, powerful. Brother Woodward, thank you for that this morning. I don't know if I've ever heard Samaria articulated quite that well. Amen. I honor you and the work in Fredericton. And we have friends in common, recently became acquainted. I'm so glad to be connected to the people of God. There's no people like the people of God. And if you're part of that great church, you're part of the blessed multitude. Amen. And then Brother Elms, my. The middle wall of partition. I want to be one of those. I want to be one of those worshipers. I want that access. I want to be covered in the blood of Jesus. I don't want to preach, re-preach every message, but, but if I could just cobble all four of those messages into one here. <laughs> and I have no doubt that the rest of the conference is going to be amazing. I look forward to it. It's great to be with you all. Let's go ahead and open up the, the word of the Lord. I once again give honor to Pastor and Sister Myers and this steering committee that put this conference together. It's such a joy to be with you all and all the ministering brethren that are here. God bless you. Amen. I know that you're being enriched as I am. I want to open to the book of Luke chapter one. Yesterday I was casting about in my mind which way God wanted me to go. I thought I knew. But I wasn't certain. And then young brother Morgan came up to me and just whispered something in my ear. I said, okay, God, I was leaning that way anyway, but here we are. God knows how to, he knows how to get our attention. Luke chapter one, and I'm going to start at verse one. For as much as many have taken in hand, to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses. Praise God. Eyewitnesses and ministers of the word didn't just see it, we did it. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Praise God. Now go with me to Acts chapter 1. A companion book. A book that is an addendum to the first book. He wants to make sure that you know and I know that this thing didn't stop with Jesus dying on the cross. Quite the contrary. The first verse, he makes it very clear. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus 
began both to do and teach. And today I want to take some time. I want to talk to you. I hope I can articulate this. My greatest concern in preaching is that God's going to have his way, but I get in the way of what he's doing sometimes. My tongue gets tied up. My mind gets paralyzed. But God is good to us, isn't he? God is so good to us. I want to talk to you about a message I'm going to entitle, A Letter to Theophilus. A Letter to Theophilus. God bless you. You can be seated. I'm aware I'm at the latter part of this day. I'm aware you've heard great things from God. I hope I can give you some, some word this, this afternoon that, that can impart something, something divine, something heavenly. You've heard it articulated so well. I can feel the unction of the Holy Ghost in this conference. The unction is, get this. Keep this. Don't get it twisted. But get outside these walls. And go. Go out into all the world. Preach this gospel. I'm convinced... That one of the great last revivals we will have is a revival of action. Amen. It's not going to be more revelation. I'm always hungry for more revelation, but we have so we've got revelation dripping from our fingertips. You said it well, Brother Woodward, when you said you know more than the vast majority of the religious world out there. They are so hungry for Pentecost. And they need to hear somebody that knows how this thing was put together from the beginning. Someone that has a more excellent understanding. Not just a casual understanding. Not just a come at the end, Johnny, come lately. Distortion that's worked its way through millennia of commentary and counsels and perversions of the word of God, but somebody who was there at the very beginning that said, I took the time to write it down so nobody could play with what God was doing. And I'm going to put it down for you, Theophilus. I'm going to talk to you about this. There is a revival of action that is here. There's a reason it's called the book of Acts. If it was the thoughts of the apostles, then we would preach from thoughts 238. If it was intentions then we would talk about the intentions of the Acts chapter 8 Samaritan revival. We have lots of good thoughts and lots of good intentions. But intentions and thoughts are not 
where this thing ends up. God needs a book of action church. This is what Jesus began both to do and teach. God's raising up doers. God's raising up praisers. God's raising up preachers. God's raising up anointed men and women to do, to do his work. I actually don't believe you can really understand it until you start doing. Practicum and theory is all well when you're sitting in a quiet room, but when you get out there and get punched in the mouth, I'm convinced that's what some woke people need is just... A good roll in the mud and a punch in the mouth. Let you see where this thing's really at. You think you know where you are in God until you run up against somebody that challenges you. But that, so well said earlier, that's not a time to run away and, and avoid and try to get away from the tension of the moment. That's a time to stand up. That's a time to lift your voice. That's a time to boldly proclaim. <laughs> I'm trying to preach Brother Woodward's message all over again. Not praying for the Spirit. I'm praying for boldness to preach the message I already know and the Spirit that's already here and the God that's been moving all the way from the beginning. Oh, thank you, Jesus. There's a great responsibility that we have. Because as apostolics, we have a message not only does this world need it, but the religious world has resisted it. One of the things that anger the religious world is that we claim that the new birth is how a man and woman enters the kingdom of God. And, and you have got to have a record of somebody that was there from the beginning. They didn't get it from the Council of Trent. They didn't get it from Nicaea. They didn't get it from just Protestant Reformation revelation although we thank god for every revelation god gives us but but i was an eyewitness of this nobody can tell me what happened when you're an eyewitness of something that god is doing then you take the time to give it to the next generation nobody can tell me that god's not a provider i know god's a provider the reason I know God's a provider is I was an eyewitness of his provision. I can take you to the corner of Colonial Boulevard and De Leon Street in Fort Myers, Florida, where my Suburban was herking and jerking as it ran out of gas, as it was gasping for, for fuel and the cylinders were drying and the firing was becoming erratic. I mechanically can describe it, but I'll just tell you, I was just running out of gas. I was a home missionary. I didn't have any money. And so uh, there was a 7-Eleven. 7-Eleven still there. I pulled up in, thought there's no better place to run out of gas than the gas station. So I pulled in. I'll hike home, which is about two miles. I've got a little money stashed away in the drawer. I don't want to ask anybody because I believe that he is Jehovah Jireh. And I believe God's a provider. And if he did it for A.D. and he did it for N.A., he can do it for N.A. too. That's one thing to have it in theory, Theophilus, but it's another thing to do it. And so I herked and jerked to the pump. And I got out ready to hike and my foot stepped down onto a $20 bill. 
Now that might not mean much in 2022, but back then, back then in 2002, it meant a lot to me because in that moment, he wasn't just Jehovah Jireh that gave manna. He wasn't Jehovah Jireh that brought water out of a rock. He was Jehovah Jireh that put gas in my tank at that exact moment. And I'm an eyewitness. I came to tell somebody he's a provider. He's a way maker. He is a Oh, I saw it. I saw it. It came to pass. And I'm here to testify that God can and does great things. So I was an eyewitness of these things, Theophilus. This world needs this gospel. It needs to be baptized in Jesus' name. A name that's above every other name. They need to receive the Holy Ghost. They need to speak with other tongues as the Spirit bears witness. And not only that, they need to bear the fruit of the Spirit after they speak with tongues. Amen. They need to let the Spirit of God come into their heart. The Spirit of adoption. And that Spirit cries, Abba, Father. Praise God. His spirit will bear witness with my spirit. That's a Galatian and Roman way of saying you'll speak with other tongues as the spirit gives the utterance. I know that because God filled me with the Holy Ghost. He filled you with the Holy Ghost. But there's a world out there that needs to know they can have the Holy Ghost. And there's some people that don't have a more excellent understanding. There's some people who weren't eyewitnesses. There's some people who have been told something else or they've been told nothing at all. And so I'm writing these letters to you, Theophilus, to tell you this is a way to ensure continuity. I can't let this die with me. God forbid we let this die with us. As elders pass off the scene, my greatest fear is that that will lose something that they had. Not only do I want what they had, but I believe we should build on their shoulders and we should reach further and do more. Praise God. It's the kind of thing that Abraham put his hand upon his servant and said, go and take a wife from another place, not the country we're in, because I'm afraid that I'm going to lose the promises that God has given. So go and ensure that this thing continues. It's supposed to endure to all generations. Amen. I don't think you could hear a better message than what you heard last night about the borderlands, that you can hang on to your identity even though you stretch. Amen. You can hang on to who you are in Jesus' name. And the doctrine is there, but there's an expansion. There's a going. There is a stretching. Praise God. The Bible tells us to spare not. And it tells us to do two things. It says, lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes. I think this is an hour that as, as we grow in our numbers, we pound the stakes down deeper and we make sure this tent can hold everybody that God is bringing into it. 
Hallelujah. We're going to preach evangelism and we're going to preach doctrine and we're going to raise up a generation of doers and preachers and singers and people that do know their God and shall do exploits. Praise God. Praise God. (laughs) When the scripture describes this, it asks us, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And there's this verse here in verse 6. By the way, there's only one man that ever did that. That's Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus is the one who ascends the hill of the Lord. And you and I, our job is to get into Jesus. But the last verse is the verse that catches my attention. This is the generation of them that seek him. That seek thy face. I want to seek the Lord. And so Luke takes the time to take a moment and put to paper to preserve this for the generations to come. I'm going to put something down that men and women will preach for the millennia to follow. It's going to be something that's going to be resisted, something that's going to be fought against, something that's going to be maligned and marginalized. But Theophilus, I'm giving this to you. It's it's an audience that he was writing to. This is a person that he's trying to reach to let him know this is how it happened. And you've got to get this, Theophilus. This was so important that God had to have four witnesses write about it. He had to have four witnesses. He had to have four men put pen to paper so you could get a four-sided view of Jesus. If you, first of all, this more than fulfills out of the mouth of two or three witnesses that every word is established. But in an era of fake news and competing narratives and Twitter wars and conservatives and liberals and Republicans and Democrats, man, if you don't have a video camera there, it didn't happen. Or if it did happen, it'll be twisted and torqued until, until justice stands afar off and truth has fallen in the streets. That's what the prophet said. But God said, I'm going to put four eye, four sets of eyeballs on this man. I'm going to, I'm going to show him from one side and another side. I'm going to show him from the perspective of a teen. I'm going to show him from the perspective of a tax collector. I'm going to show him from the perspective of a devout Jew that lays his head on the breast of Jesus. I'm going to show him from a medical perspective because I want you to have a full orbed, multifaceted front row seat to who Jesus is. You're going to need to know who Jesus is. He's not on a wall, still crucified. He's alive. And I was an eyewitness of that. You're going to walk through valleys and you need to know who Jesus is. You're going to walk through lions and you're going to need to know who Jesus is. You're going to walk through perils and shipwrecks. And you're going to need to know What I'm telling you, Theophilus, Theophilus, the name is interesting. It's an interesting name. Most people, 
throughout history have assumed that it is a young man, perhaps, that he's writing to, that can carry it on. Paul deals with Timothy. He deals with Silas. He deals with Barnabas and Demas. Maybe this is Luke's protege. I've got this young guy, and he's apparently important enough to write two letters to. This shadowy figure in the Bible. His name is an interesting name. It's Theos and Phylos. Theos means God. God. And, and philo means lover or love. These words, they still exist today. If you are a, a philo-anthropist, you're a person who loves people. You give money to causes. Philanthropy is giving to cancer research. It's, it's giving to AIDS research. It's tying red ribbons around trees and... and Gestures of solidarity. It's tying yellow ribbons and pink ribbons when it's breast cancer awareness. And there's philanthropists that give great sums. And it's not to be confused with philanderers. Because the anthropos that is in, that is in philanthropist is the same root that is the anderer. But one means you love them in a very benevolent sense. The other one means you love them in a very bad sense. <laughs> and you're not faithful, and you don't have a moral compass, and you're all over the map, and God rejects you. This is not philosophy. It's not philosophy. Or a lover of wisdom. That sophie is the same root that's in sophomore. It's the same root that's in sophia. It means wisdom. And Brother Ethan said, Amen. This is <laughs> something different. I'm not here teaching about Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. I'm here to preach about somebody much greater than them. I'm here to talk about somebody a lot greater than them. I'm here to talk to the Theophili, the Theophilus. I'm here to talk to the one who loves God. Hallelujah. I'm here to talk to the one who's in love with Jesus. I'm here to talk to the one that presses a little further, that looks a little deeper, that takes a little more time. I'm here to talk to the one that reaches and pushes and searches themselves. I want somebody that's ready to take a moment and figure out what this really means. What it really says. Did he really say that? And if he did, what did he mean by it? These are the seekers of revelation. These are the lovers of truth. These are a lover of the things of God. Let me bring it closer. This is the Acts 238 church. This is the one God people. These are the people that stayed long enough. That dug deep enough. That cared enough. To find out what he really said. Praise God. You'll see it. There's people that don't, they care more about their traditions than they do about God. When, when, it, when it came out that Jesus comes from Nazareth, they, they, they told the Sanhedrin that this could be the Messiah. And flippantly, you get this cast off answer. 
Don't you know anything? Search the scripture. No prophet arises from Nazareth. That's the classic knee-jerk response of the person with a casual interest. It's the classic response of the mildly curious. The person more interested in preserving tradition and their feathered nest than they are the genuine work of God. Because God was incognito and he was walking among them. And if you took the time, you would have found out he was born in Bethlehem. You would have found out that the prophet said he would come. That though you are small among the nations, yet out of you will come one that will rule them with a rod of iron. If you took the time, you would find out that, that he came out of Egypt. That it might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt have I called my son. If you looked a little closer and you loved him enough, you would have found that he's the Messiah. But you're not like that, Theophilus. I'm writing this letter to you. Because here's the truth, and I'll just say it here. At this juncture in the message, I'll, this isn't written just to one guy. He knew that there was an audience. There was a, I, I, I believe it was Brother Green last night. We were talking. He said, I felt like he was talking straight to me. That's because he was. God's omnipotence and his omniscience allows him to speak to this whole group, but yet single just you out. And he could write to the millions, but he could write to just you. You, God lover. You, Theophilus. You, the one who took the time to turn the pages. You, the one who moved past Luke into the book of Acts. You, who found out that this thing didn't stop at Golgotha. This thing went on. Go and tarry ye in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. For you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me. It's a, it's a group of Theophilus that realize that it's not supposed to stay in Jerusalem. But it's to start in Jerusalem and Judea and go to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Praise God. But you got to love him to pursue it that far. You gotta, you've got to be a God lover. We're living in a day where we need God lovers. You heard an exhortation last night. Let me speak to the body of Christ. That said, in all of your accumulating, don't forget the most important thing. In all of your getting, get wisdom and get understanding. Hallelujah. In all of, and, and, and there's going to be increase. There's going to be material increase. There's going to be money that comes. God will fund his kingdom. Amen. God's going to raise up talented, gifted people. But in all of that, all of that greatness and all of that increase, always love him. In a, in a world of, of iPhones and iPads and many times idle hours, don't allow the addictions that snare so many. Don't allow those secret moments, those unaccountable moments. Don't allow that lack of discipline and don't allow those wandering eyes and those dark corners of the internet, don't let them beckon you. 
Don't let them pull you from the, from the mountaintop down into the valley. Hallelujah. Don't you let, don't you let the addictions that your grandfather escaped grab a hold of you. Your grandfather had to go down to the ABC liquor store, but you can get this thing right in your pocket. It's right there 24-7, and it's going to take a God lover. It's going to take somebody that says, I love him more than I love this world. I love the Holy Ghost more than I love the drug, more than I love the drink, more than I love the... The Bible said they would be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. So it's going to take that in this hour. But I'm, I'm not here to bring a message of doom. I'm here to talk to God lovers. I'm here to talk to world changers. I'm here to talk to singers and preachers and, 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 and Bible study teachers and Sunday school teachers. The, 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 the least heralded oftentimes are those that tuck that chart under their arm and walk from house to house. I love you God lover I love you that you took the time to go in there and sit down with somebody sit down with the single mom sit down with the young man that would be a statistic if you didn't take the time to sit down with somebody bound in religion and false doctrine and start to untie the tentacles and to set the captive free that's you. That's you. I love these Sunday school teachers. I, I sometimes it's so hard when you're a Sunday school teacher because you got to get through all the snotty noses and the the grubby little hands. If you're teaching them in a room with reflective surfaces, God help you. I'm terrified of children. I'm a lover of the things of God, and I thank God for every Sunday school teacher because you are doing something I could not do. Put me in front of lions, put me in front of a firing squad, but put me in front of 20 little five-year-olds. My blood run cold, runs cold. But my point is, what powerful people. I had a Sunday school teacher. Her name was Sister Stapleton. She was at Calvary Tabernacle. I was just a little kid and she would get up. I can remember one day she, she put a Bible on one side and she put a Curious George book on the other side and she made a tug of war between the two books and some kids got on one side and I got on the Curious George side and I had a really big chubby kid next to me that was the strongest kid in the class. And that day, carnality won. <laughs> the, the, the lesson was, which one are you pulled towards? Which part of your nature is going to win? And there's people that would look at that and think that was so minor. But to a, a child, I remember that getting down on the inside of my heart and saying, man, I want the word of God to win in my life. I want the word of God to win. And I remember her up there just teaching. And all I could think of was that's a God lover. 
got somebody that cares that took the time and I honor every one of our teachers and every one of our servers and all of the people that made this conference every person that shook every hand every person that prepared every meal that put every sandwich together that burned your fingers on the pot God bless you God lover that you took enough time to realize it's not about you it's about the kingdom of God and somebody cared and somebody look and what you do you don't do it with eye service as men pleasers but you do it as unto the Lord I saw her again I saw her I had built the Fort Myers church by that time I had evangelized we had built the Roatan church and I had been to foreign countries and established that church and and now I was evangelizing and preaching. I was now preaching in, in Mississippi where I had pastored at that time. And I saw her at a funeral. She came walking up and she was stooped. She couldn't move. She, her hair was snow white. She had a walker. And nobody really noticed her that much that I could see. But I saw her. I saw the woman that put in my heart the word of God is greater than anything in this world. And I went over to her and I said, hey, hey, Sister Stapleton, how are you doing? Are you doing good? She said, I'm doing good. Do I know you? I said, no, you probably don't. I was little. I said, I'm in my 40s. I said, but I, I want you to know that you launched a little ship a long time ago. And it sailed over some turbulent waters and it went into some crazy places. I said, but I want you to know there's some little Hispanic people down in an island you probably never heard of that are beneficiaries of something you set in motion a long time ago. And because you took the time, there's a Jesus name, apostolic church. Hallelujah. It's got four daughter works now. It's evangelized the whole island. They've got paid off real estate. I'm telling you, there's a lot of moving parts to this kingdom, but it's filled with people who love him. It's filled with people who are in love with his purpose and with his mission. And I'm writing that to you. It's an open letter. It's an open letter to everybody that reads it. I want you to know what it looked like. I want you to know what really happened. I want you to know how it took place. There's going to be some people that are going to come and try to tell you to baptize in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But I was an eyewitness. I was an eyewitness. And I saw it, and I have more certain understanding of everything that happened. Woo! Yeah. And you, you take the time to read it. And not only did he say baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but come on over here. Look, look in, look in my book. Here, Luke 24, it said repentance and remission of sins would be preached in my name. In my name. Look a little further and look what Mark said. Hallelujah. That he that believeth and is baptized would be saved. Hallelujah. And these things would be done in his name. There's something about the name. Look a little deeper. Look a little deeper. I was there at Pentecost when Peter stood up and preached Jesus. I was standing there with the eleven. I saw those twelve men lined up. And 
I'm telling you, you're baptized in Jesus' name. He is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And you're going to need to know this. You'll get out there. You'll get out there and somebody will say, well, I, I got baptized. And when I got baptized, that was the Holy Ghost. But you know better than that. Not you, Theophilus. You took the time. You know what it's like to go into the Samaritan revival and see that they were baptized. They were only baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they called the apostles and that they might lay hands on them. And when they did, there's more to it than just being baptized in Jesus' name. Amen. But they were filled with the Holy Ghost. That's a separate and distinct experience, Theophilus. And you're going to have to love him enough to find that out. You're going to have to read this account. And you're going to have to read that next account. And you're going to wade through the religions of men and the doctrines of men. You're going to meet people that are hungry for this. You're going to meet people that are tugged between two worlds. The world that says I was always raised like this. My mom was this. My dad was this. My grandparents were this. But then what does the word of the Lord say? You're going to sit down at a kitchen table with them and you're going to preach Jesus to them. Now you can offend them and you can hurt them and you can use it in a, in a weapon, in a, in a weaponized kind of a way. Or you can love God. Here's something about loving God. You can't say you love God that you've never seen and say that you love men that you have seen. It doesn't work like that. If you can't love your brother that you have seen, you cannot love the God whom you never have seen. And if you love him first, you'll love them next. It's the two commandments. Love the Lord your God, who is one, by the way. Love him with all your heart. Love him with all your mind, soul, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. It's like unto it. You can't let them go to hell and still love him. So when you talk to them, let your words be with grace. Seasoned with salt. Just a sprinkling of sharpness. I have known some men in my day that got that backwards. They think you're supposed to let your speech be with salt. Sprinkled with grace. <laughs> they're nice once every couple of years. But they're mean most of the other time. They think they're going to win the world like that. Not going to win anybody like that. But if you're a God lover, you know that. Before you condemn anybody, aren't you glad he didn't condemn you? Before you look at all their faults, aren't you glad he didn't look at all your faults? That he looked beyond your faults? That he saw your need? That he took the time at the well? That he took the time to tell you who he was? He called up Oh, I'm so glad he's merciful. I'm so glad he's gracious. If he has been that to me, how much more am I supposed to be that to them? Hallelujah. They've never seen him. They've never felt him. All they can see is you. All they can hear is you. And until
until they can see him. You're the only connection they've got. So be kind. Love them. Love them as Christ loved the church. Praise God. Praise God. I have more perfect understanding of this. This is something that a person has to grow into a love for God that surpasses every other love in their life. And and people are coming from a long way. I love the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. That he stopped his chariot long enough for Philip to come up and beginning at the same place, preach Jesus. The place he was at was Isaiah 53. He was led as a as a sheep before it shears his dumb, he opened not his mouth. Who will declare his generation? What a, what a statement. Who will declare his generation? The God lovers will. They say of Jesus that he had no children, but that just means biologically he didn't have children. Isaiah 53, who shall declare his generation? It says he was cut off. It means he didn't have children. It means that he didn't have a wife and he wasn't able to procreate that his name might be declared. But but this king that was coming was a root out of a dry ground. He was going to have children in a way that nobody else in the world ever could have them. Born of the water and born of the spirit, there are millions ready to declare his generation. Hallelujah. Philip was ready right there on the spot to get up into that chariot and preach Jesus. Can I just get right down to where we live right now? There's a political argument that's used in our world today. That's it's Islamophobia. People are afraid of Islam. And they talk about the Islamization of Europe. And they're worried because they see the rise of people. And, and what they're saying is they're having seven and eight children and we're having 1.3. And just by virtue of birth, they're going to overtake us. But they have forgotten the apostolic church. I believe that we are the people that can raise the name of Jesus to such a level that the world has never seen it done like that before. Hallelujah. I don't just have the ability to have two children. I have the ability to have multitudes of children. I have the ability to declare his generation. What do you think I'm doing with that Bible study chart? I'm declaring his generation. What do you think I'm doing every Sunday morning? I'm declaring his generation. What do you think I'm doing right now? I'm declaring, I'm declaring, I'm declaring his generation. Every time you preach Jesus, you declare him. Every time you testify about him, you declare Declare him. And you want to push back on every ideology and every ism and every governmental influence? Preach Jesus. Every person in here, every person in here has Abrahamic power. Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Amen. That means you're supposed to have babies. That means you're supposed to baptize people in Jesus' name. That The message of the hour is action. Go. Go. Action. Go. Do it. Preach it. Testify it. Love them. And I'm convinced that you and I can. It's the message of the hour. And I took the time to write that to you, Theophilus. 
I took the time to write an open letter to you, knowing that you'll read it, that you'll take the time to declare it. When I fall in love with him, I'll represent him everywhere I go. Well, I'm the only one on my job. I'm the only one in my school. I'm all by myself. I'm the only one out here. Join the club. God's always had a Daniel. He's always had a Gideon. Hallelujah. He's always had a Deborah. Thank you, Jesus. He's always had people in locations and places. Now, you can look at that as though you're outnumbered. Or you can look at it the way it really is. That God has such a potent concentrate inside you. That what you have is... Have you ever, have you ever had something that's concentrated? I didn't understand concentrate at one time. My wife left me alone to wash the dishes. And I pulled out ultra concentrated dishwashing. And I poured a big gloop of it into the dishwasher. I closed it. I went to take the dogs for a walk. Job well done. I came back in 20 minutes. I had a bubble bath creeping towards my front door. Because there are some times where the stuff you got is so powerful, you just need a drop of it. While people are whining and complaining that they're all by themselves, Elijah the prophet walked up to the top of Carmel, saw 800 false prophets and said, that all you got? This it? You're going to need a lot more than this. I'm serving the God that answers by fire. And if that's all, you got to get that kind of a spirit down on the inside. When you love God, you look at the devil and say, is that all you've got? You're going to need a lot more than that to shut my mouth. I have just begun to preach. I have just begun to shout. I have just begun to testify. The stuff that's inside of me has a lot of power. And God just needed one to do his work. That's you. That's me. Praise God. I, I know the hour is going late. I don't want to take a lot longer. But I... We, last... Last... Two, I'm sorry. Two Sundays ago, we baptized a young lady in Jesus' name. Thank the Lord. What was interesting about this young lady is three months before that, she was trying to be a young man. She came in with a buzzed head and baggy clothes and a hat and a deep voice, hormone therapy had already begun. And she said, my name's Jeremy. And I heard this church was where it's at. We thought it was a boy. Finally, one of my teachers came to me and said, Pastor, I don't think it's a boy. Something's not right. We began to ask her. She said, yeah, I'm transitioning. She said, but my name's Jeremy. The social worker told me that. I got drugs, I've got therapists, I've got two psychological counseling sessions every week and they're all telling me this is the way to go. I wish I could tell you that I pulled out some profound insight, but what I did was I looked right into her eyes and I just loved her. I said, honey, it's so good to see you. 
I'm so glad you came. God bless your heart. Can I pray with you? I wish I could tell you it was some big thing. All I can tell you is something inside of her started moving. Something inside. She locked on to something. And it's not Brother Urshan. It's Jesus. It's the God that I love. Ah! She said, can I get baptized? I said, honey, you know what? Why don't we take a little while? Let's read the Bible a little bit. Can we do that? I could have said, no, you terrible, wicked thing. I stopped. I said, let's just see what Jesus has for us. Let's learn a little bit about God. Would that be all right? She said, I'd love it. I sat down with her. Saturday after Saturday, some people helped me. We, we taught her. Finally, when it was all over, she said, I'm going to hell like this, aren't I? I said, well, sweetheart, well, let's talk about going to heaven. Let's, 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 let's look at the sunlight. Let's not look at the shadow. Let's not look at what hell wants to do. Let's look at what God wants to do. Did you know he loves you? Did you know he died for you? She walked in two weeks ago and she said, my name's Brittany and I want to be baptized in Jesus name. I wish I could bottle up what I felt in that moment when she came up out of that water speaking in other tongues as the Holy Ghost came out of her mouth. I wish I could pour it out here. But, 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 but. This is the hour for the God lovers. This is the hour for the ones that have his message. And I'm convinced you've got it. Remain standing. Musicians can come. I can't help but hear the message of this conference. Love him. Be authentic. Don't be afraid. Go. It was preached about the little girl that testified to Naaman. And she said, oh, if my master were in Israel. Brother Elms, your treatment of Jerusalem today was amazing. How many miracles happened on that soil? This is the land where Abraham offered Isaac, which is very metaphoric of the father would offer his only begotten son. That revelation was given on that mountain that day. Praise God. This is the land where lepers were cleansed. The land where widows received their children back to life. And where waters were parted. Whoo! This is the land where Jordan's waters were parted. This is the land where it was meted out and delegated out. This land of the miracles that holds the world captivated. But it's a new day. He dipped seven times. I'm convinced that, that the deeper you go into this thing, the more revelation God's going to give you and the more equipped you're going to be to preach it and teach it effectively. I don't have time to talk about what those seven times mean, but they're tied to the seven eyes and the seven horns and the seven days. Hallelujah. It's about completion. It's about oath. It's about covenant. I, I just couldn't help but hear while he was talking about that woman at the well, that those five guys she was married to and the six guys she was living with, that there was a seventh guy. She met the one that had the water that slaked her thirst. It'd be the seventh man. 
all of this metaphorism and all of this miracle working power Naaman looks at at the servant and says hey would you mind if I, I got some guys with shovels here that maybe they could look I got these baskets and I want to take a bunch of this dirt I see I see Gehazi digging and putting it into these baskets and the leprosy's gone and you want dirt okay and the weirdness and the oddness it just stands out in the scripture until you realize what he was doing she told me that there was a prophet in Israel and when I get to where I'm going and my master kneels before his God maybe I can spread out a little dirt this miracle this powerful the message of today guys is right here in Palm Bay we can spread out a little Jerusalem hallelujah in Durham North Carolina in Cincinnati all over this area we can bring Jerusalem right here and the days of miracles are upon us we are mobile we're taking it with us we're going to go to places that are going to blow your mind we're going to wind up in spots sometime on your lunch break you just got to shut the door and you just got to start praying and let that atmosphere from Sunday night get a hold of you and bring church with you I'll lay hands on you here on the job. I'll lay hands on you here in the break room. I'll lay hands on you in the park. I'll preach to you in the deli. I'll go to New York City. I'll... This is a message for God lovers. Let's lift our hands to heaven right now. I can't think of any better way to end these day sessions today than to come down here. Step out from where you are and lift your hands to heaven. Praise God. This is a generation that he's writing to. It's not just one guy. It's a host of people that love him. It's not just one audience. It's, it's a multitude that he can single out each person as he's dealing with all of them. You are going to be my hands. You are going to be my feet. You are going to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature right now, right where you're at. I know God's been talking to your heart. I know you came to Winds Conference for a word from God. Hallelujah. You've heard it this morning. You've heard it preached up one side and down the other. Now it's time for action. I have and to teach it. God's raising up doers. God's raising up preachers. God's raising up testifiers. God's raising up healers and givers and entrepreneurs. And As they sing, lift your hands to heaven right now. As we close this service, right where you're at, I want you to lift your voice. I wrote these letters to you. I'm talking to you. I'm trying to give a more excellent understanding, a more perfect awareness. I'm trying to highlight some things that everybody needs to know. Come on, Theophilus. 
Come on, Theophilus, you're going to need this. You're going to need to dig a little deeper. You're going to need to search a little further. You're going to need to, like you reach for you, touch them like he touched you.
Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Lord, let this word be hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Let's just press in for a moment. Lord, we pursue everything that has been spoken today. God, we want everything that you have spoken today, Lord. Don't let one word fall to the ground without somebody receiving it, God, in their spirit today. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. All throughout this service, I have felt the voice of the Lord echoing in my spirit saying, Without me, you can do nothing. You cannot go and do this on your own. That's what God has been speaking to me, saying, Without me, this is not possible. You cannot do this without me. But I, I felt the voice of the Lord speak to me at some point throughout this service and I feel it was a prophecy of God saying I will go with you and I will join with you when you join with each other I felt the voice of the Lord speak and say I will not join with you until you join with each other for where two or three are gathered together in my name there am I in the midst of them. I really feel in my spirit that there are men and women, both young and old, who have received prophetic utterances and visions and direction from God. You have received calling and direction of what to do and where to go. But God is saying you can't do it by yourself. You must do it with me, and I will not join with you unless you are linked together and joined together until you come together with your brother and your sister. For Elijah was all by himself, and God said, this journey is too great for you. So let me give you a brother named Elisha, because you can't go by yourself. You can't do it by yourself. That's it. There's a calling of Elijah. There's a mantle of Elijah. There's an anointing of Elijah. But it's got to be connected with a brother, with a sister. We've got to do this together. We're two or three. Together, together, together. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were in one mind, in one place, together. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind that filled all the house. Come on, pray together, worship together, rejoice together. <laughs> Sotto 
That's it, that's it. There shall be a revival in Samaria. There shall be a revival in the borderlands. There you go together. That old song used to say, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. I wonder what would happen if, if we sang that song that said, when we all get together. When we all get together, what a day of harvest and a day of revival and a day of I spoken to us last night. And just I go forward in your word. I go hands. Hallelujah, Jesus. Amen.